you set out trying to do? Did you want to work in galleries or did you want to do art criticism? I mean, when I was did you a know? teenager, I was obsessed with the idea of pop cultural media. Magazines in the 90s had this explosion where desktop publishing allowed people to create independent magazines like Purple and Face and Ray and Self Service. And they were like all these magazines that unlocked all these microcultures. And I mean, it was like a proto internet, right? And the world building that these magazines did was really captivating to me. Through luck and some connections, I got to intern at Condé Nast as a teenager and seeing that machine work from the inside, understanding how it was directing certain cultural forces, I thought this is really fascinating. This is a really interesting industry. So I just wanted to work in magazines, to be honest. I really like the format. I really like the pace. I thought that that would be the trajectory. I worked in a gallery as a way of, I mean, it was a job that was offered to me and it was a way of understanding that part of the system. And by that point, I had gone to grad school and was really interested in cultural theory and media theory and art seemed to be the place where this would be professionally viable. So, I mean, I really just was like water running downhill. I was just following things that were offered and it seemed like they were going in the right direction. And then it imploded, right? <laughs> like, <laughs> literally started at Art Forum. And uh, it was like when that Damien Hurst skull was sold at auction for like oh a jillion dollars. And that was my first issue. And uh, it was just the height. It was right before the financial crash. And by September of that year, already they were like, oh, I'm not so sure. This whole thing's going to last. My, my professional life has been one of like, you know, the ground continuously sort of eroding from underneath me. But that's also freeing because you then realize, well, you better build your own boat because you can't trust the one you're on necessarily. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I like to joke that I was here before Beverly's was built, but now I'm actually so old, I mean, seasoned and experienced that no one even knows what Beverly's is. So, you know, that was the Dime Square before Dime Square existed. <laughs> Carly Busta from the New Models podcast, welcome back. Probably the most frequent crossover episodes that we've done. Do you want to give people for, we'll say, the slim minority of my audience that are not familiar with New Models, what exactly is that project? Who are your collaborators? And uh, yeah, let people know what you do. Sure. Well, Josh, thanks for having me on. I'm super excited because I feel that New Models and Josh and Matt and Holly of Interdependence, we've all crossed over several times, but this is the first time you and I have recorded one-on-one. So excited about that. New Models is a project that comes out of a similar spirit as Josh's DNR and Interdependence and a number of art world adjacent initiatives that started because they saw the end of the road with what we loosely call legacy media. We can define that later. Mm -hmm. Linear media, let's say. And the physics, as my partner, Little Internet Julian, says of social media. And we felt that it was just not supporting discourse, but it also wasn't supporting a digital home where we like to hang out. It just felt really bad. We started New Models. It was conceived in 2017. We launched it in 2018. Initially, it was a aggregator where we were just taking text. We were saying that like the writer's fees are so low, publications are all asking the same pool of writers to write about the same thing. Nobody can get any attention for their articles. So why don't we go through and cherry pick the best articles we're seeing out there, put them all on one Drudge Report-like page, <laughs> which at the time was a flex because at the time Drudge was very much associated with right-wing politics or whatnot. But we were like, you know, any way you slice it, it's like one of the most visited sites, at least 
for an American demographic. So there's something about that digital architecture that works. What if we fill it with stuff that isn't necessarily sensationalizing and maybe like right-wing adjacent? What if we just filled it with like art content or cultural theory? What would happen? Out of that, we started a podcast because we wanted a space to talk through some of the themes we were putting together. And then about six months later, somebody in the subscribing community suggested we start a Discord. So we did. And very similar to DNR, the community took on a life of its own and it became a um, a holographic media space with a community and a top-down signal. And we're still riding that wave, trying to recalibrate to whatever form of media comes next. Yeah. I like to think that if, and actually I'm paraphrasing from Lauren Boyle here, but if crowdfunding had been around when DIS was in the heyday of curating exhibitions before they transitioned to being purely a video platform, young creative communities might have looked very different at that period. So I think the idea is that we sent out this strong signal over social media in the form of a podcast of newsletters and writing and uh, essentially opinions that were not given the proper platform or credibility in legacy media at that time. And it turns out that a lot of people are actually interested in that and gathered around that work (laughs) and wanted to produce things similar to it. So now we have these communities that are gathered through discords and RSS feeds and uh, a few places here and there. And the question is, what are these things going to evolve into some type of para-institutional space is actually a term I picked up from you. uh, (laughs) You've been tremendously influential in like setting a narrative frame for how to understand these things in the last few years. But before we get too, too far into this, let me ask you about this period in 2017. I was having private closed doors conversations with people who worked at think tanks, who were consultants, people who were political journalists, uh, all sorts of things. And it was tremendously unpopular to discuss some of these topics at that time, right? Around that time, 2017, what are these early conversations that then lead to founding new models a year later? Right. I mean, just to touch on something you said there, until really Trump's election or let's say 2014-15, most people in left-adjacent spaces or culture-adjacent spaces had this idea that the internet was a progressive space that the internet and that social media, that Web2 platforms were a democratizing space. But you have, during the Obama administration, an alignment of mass pop culture, proto-Web2 social media, and governmental agencies, allowing no space for dissent, except for on the right. And these right-wing spaces become spaces of dissent or of questioning. And of course, in some cases, it's taken very far into absolutely like intolerant and corrosive. But it was kind of the only space of critique that was available. So this space became pretty interesting. Any space that was outside of the social media industrial complex or whatever you'd want to call it. Around 2014 or 15, people were starting to see that system break and negative effects on the way we absorb media, on the way we talk to each other, on the kind of conversations we can have. Kevin, uh, the political scientist, Kevin Munger, who is in both of our communities, he's done a lot of work on this. And, you know, we'll quite clearly say that the physics of social media make 20th century discourse impossible. And so anybody, though, anybody who is questioning the way social media worked or the strength of legacy media was seen as maybe working for the other side. And it was very frustrating because you couldn't find a space outside of the clearly available channels. So when we started New Models, I mean, that idea had been in the works certainly throughout 2017. And it really started 
because there were some artists that were dealing with memes in 2016, and the art world was very nervous about this. (laughs) But it really blew up. Like the idea that someone would put a Pepe in the show was like somebody like spray painting swastikas, like, you know, in a school or something. It was a very, it felt like a very strong message for some people. But there really wasn't any space to debate this. It was like as soon as you were, as soon as you weren't condemning it, you were part of the problem. I, at the time, I was working for the Berlin-based critical art journal Text der Kunst, and I was very interested in this medium of memes. I figured that, you know, in the lineage of Dis and other younger artists at the time who were thinking about digital culture and the way that was changing, the way we communicate through symbols, I thought we should be looking at memes and we should be looking at meme culture and we should be speaking to artists that are interested in this conversation. And um, this was just not tolerated by the publisher, and um, she felt like it was a liability. She's um, from Gen X, basically, and that generation still very much believed in linear media. Yes, books and print magazines, but like a slower pace of media, which is also fine. I mean, I respect that also. That's their culture. That's their generation. That's how they communicate. That's the medium in which they work. But of course, for younger generations, that was no longer true. And I just realized that I I can't force this publication to do something that it doesn't want to do. So the burden that our generation has to carry, or maybe the opportunity we have, is to explore new forms of media, explore new structures. And if we don't build it, then who will? Like Meta, or I guess at the time, Facebook? You know, we might as well try. And as culture-adjacent people, like, why not? If not us, then who, right? Uh, so it, it, it was a very freeing moment because it was it was one where you decide voice is no longer possible. I must choose exit. Once that decision is sort of apparent, then you have the confidence to just either you're going to go down with the ship or else you're you're going to jump. <laughs> so <laughs> yeah, making the decision to exit is often difficult, and it's usually a one way trip. Like when I yeah. turn down the offer to teach at RISD to do this full time you don't get an invitation the next year. So this is right. this is a pretty risky scenario. And being a few years into this, this project now, uh, it's become very clear, I think, that it's really not possible to crowdfund meaningful art criticism. If it was possible to crack, I think someone would have cracked it already. There's been a few different attempts at that, but the things that get closest to it is new models, interdependence, my channel, but we all have one foot in art and then one foot in this other world. So for me, it's uh, memes, radical politics, uh, you know, internet culture phenomena. Uh, for new models, it's maybe the newsfeed and for interdependence, it's tech fields like AI and, and crypto and so on. But it doesn't really seem possible. I've put a lot of thought into this. It doesn't really seem possible to crowdfund art criticism 100% the dedication, the topic that your publication is focused on, simply because there's just not enough people in the fucking art world. Like it is actually really small. So I see a lot of discontent. I see a lot of discontent from people who are trapped in these legacy media structures. But because there's no possibility to fully exit from that system, they're kind of trolling back and forth on the deck of a sinking ship, right? Right? And, and you see people who are like, they're beholden to these institutional decisions and preferences and like weird uh, ideological priorities in the past few years. But essentially, all of that criticism is at its core meaningless because there's no way for them to actually exit because they can't sustain themselves. So they are like totally trapped to these things. And what you get is basically a culture of people and a, a system of values within the art world and within legacy media where 
they're beholden to those decisions and they attend exhibitions or they read articles in print or whatever it happens to be, not because they really like the stuff that's on the wall or the stuff that's in the article, but they're envious of the people who have those positions and there's nothing they can do about it. And so there's just this through the whole system, this ideological Stockholm syndrome that like, okay, I guess what is put on the wall here makes sense. And our job in reaction to this problem in the legacy media world is that We're trying to value things absent their market price and absent their institutional credibility because we tend to think that both of those things have pretty severe problems that are evident and and dysfunctional at this moment. Yeah. I mean, I would even go, I am running with this idea lately that our conception of an art world is tied to the existence of linear media. And if you go back to, you know, I know Habermas is a very problematic figure, but if you go back to his description of the public sphere, you know, the rise of the modern public sphere is like early 18th century. So I forget exactly when the Paris Salon started, but let's say like sometime around 1726 or something like that, right? Well before the French Revolution. But what that did is it took people of all different classes and it allowed them to share a physical space viewing whatever was coming out of the Ecole de Beaux-Arts or whatever, you know, painters, mostly painters, some sculptors that had some kind of cultural prominence. So, okay, so that's one thing. You have people of various different class backgrounds coming together in an urban center in a physical space, looking at these works, which have, you know, have already have some layer of cultural value. To even make it into the Paris Salon, there's a judging process, right? So, so there's already like something valuable on the wall that people are supposed to collectively discuss. But that's only part of it. Because you have all these different kinds of people in a space together, dressed in all these different ways, physically like, you know, brushing elbows with each other, you then have a classic journalist, which pops up. And they're very interested in the spectacle of the salon. Yes, they're interested in talking about the paintings, but they're really interested in seeing how different classes are interacting and how different classes are reacting. Like, oh, is the bourgeoisie offended by this? Do like the sort of young bohemians, if we can already call them that in the 18th century, maybe that's like ahistorical, but you know, do they like it? The art is just a litmus test for how different classes, like what power they really have in society. It's less about the art than it is about how these different groups of people are able to respond to what's there. So this starts art criticism. I think one could argue it was more about the reading of different cultural groups than it was even about the painting. And the painting was only valuable insofar as it stimulated different kinds of conflicts among these different groups. So this is a super interesting moment, right? But it requires linear media because it requires everyone's attention to be focused on certain critics, certain publications. There's like a timeline to when something is released. Then there's a moment of wonder and discussion and debate. Then the critic writes a review. Then the review comes out. Then people argue about whether or not, you know, the review is right or it's wrong or is it scandalous. And so this is a rhythm. It's a rhythm just like, you know, Monday Night Football is a rhythm and then there's a Super Bowl. And it's a rhythm that like all these different people of all these different classes or anyone who's tuning into the media is able to sink on. So it's very important, I think, in the conception of modernism. But we see a dissolution of anyone caring about art when we see the dissolution of linear media. 
because I think we see a dissolution of the public sphere. And, you know, you'll hear like whatever Elon saying Twitter's the town hall or whatever, or (laughs) Web2 Media is a common space. I mean, it's just not. It's Uh just not. It's not a public sphere. Right. It's not a common space. insane libertarian frothing nonsense. Oh, my God. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. It's not. I mean, it's like it's just not. And we can talk later about like some maybe some models for what social media is and where there might be some semblance of a public sphere. But it's not in any of our main channels of media. So my feeling is that like individual artists are making interesting things in relation to certain discourses um, that are external to the art world. But like art criticism isn't interesting as its own discourse because it doesn't share a room anymore. You're not in the same space. It doesn't share a society. I would say as late as 2012, I mean, this is kind of the cutoff. You still had that semblance of like, common group. And it was a very global one by 2012, which is interesting. I mean, we went in the aughts with the internet. We were able to have a global scope and there were biennials all over the world. And there was an interest in sort of these large exhibitions that brought everyone together. But around 2012, you start to see that dissolve. And I just don't think the art world as an entity is interesting because it's not in the same room. It's like everyone's living at a hostel now or something as opposed to a grand hotel. There's no really good common space. So I'm not actually interested in defending spaces purely about art criticism. Maybe that will make sense in the future. And I hope it does, because I really have enjoyed that kind of media historically. But I think that now they will be adjacent. There will be a discourse adjacent to what's happening in AI, say, that for sure will be one. There will be one maybe that is adjacent to questions of migration and displacement of peoples and different cultures coming together. I think there are going to be discipline-specific worlds where art criticism will play a role. But that's sort of the shift that I think that we're accepting. So yeah, there's no crowdfunding for art criticism because outside of an enclave, like Dime Square could maybe have like a self-funded art critical newspaper. But on a larger scale than that, I don't think it's possible. They could definitely have a dad-funded art critical newspaper. Okay, yeah, Seems to be true. a lot of that going <laughs> <Or> on. teal-funded, <laughs> yeah. Um, let me ask you about this question of 2012, though, because that's a really important inflection point. And I think we've touched on this in a few different conversations. If you look at the adoption curve of social media, 2012 is when like, it's not just you and your friends from college. It's like your mom, dad, aunt and uncle, and everybody you know is on Facebook. There's just this like big network effect and like uptick of uh, monthly active users. That seems to correlate with this dissolution of the public sphere. But at that time, you're uh, you're still in New York. Is that correct? You're at Art That's Forum right. at that time, yeah. not TZK. And I'm kind of curious if like, because you really do have a background in, as you described it here, linear media, which I'm taking to mean like a monthly publication, a quarterly publication. There's like opinions, critical discourse. And that frequency, that regularity sets the pace and also creates like shared references across the community. But then when you switch over to the news feed, and then it becomes literally not chronological anymore as the news feed is optimized to engage more users. So if we're spanning this period, maybe you could reconstitute for some of our younger listeners who are, you know, literally 19, 20 years old, they're interested in creative life, but they don't have the same experience that we came from. They didn't see the world before social media. They didn't see the world before uh, the internet, you know, even, even web one. So what was the thing that changed? What changed in the priorities of the editors and, and just the experience of encountering culture through these linear publications? I mean, I would say in 2012, editors at Art Forum and other adjacent publications still believed that despite there being this large uptick of adoption of social media, 
that at the end of the day, these papers of record, these established publications still had more clout, still were the ones that mattered. They still were the ones that accorded value to something. And so while all the editors were also consuming social media and participating in this, especially anyone who was you know younger than, say, 40 or something at the time was, there was a little bit of denial that, well, we're going to have these two tracks where social media will continue, but the content for social media will still be primarily generated by legacy media. I mean, I like to think about it as like the image in my head is a Glen Canyon dam or something. Think of any kind of major hydroelectric dam. And there's like a PowerPoint. There's like a literal PowerPoint. And you need a repository of weighty content, water, on one side of it. And it needs to have some kind of altitude drop in order to generate power. And you're just seeing all that content now evaporate. I mean, it really is just like, you know, an image out west before or be rerouted, right? Uh, And being reabsorbed into the ground or being rerouted to avocado plantations or whatever before it reaches that dam. So there's just not that pressure, not that power that's coming downstream. But in the 2012 editor's mind of, say, Art4, myself included, you're like, yeah, but our water is special. So the water that makes it through the dam is like, you know, the really good stuff. So like, who cares if some of it like burns off? There's, we still have the good stuff coming through. And I think we believed at that moment that especially in the art sector, there would still be, say, philanthropic means or there would still be, it would be a vanity thing to support these magazines. And so they would still continue because the community that they create was valuable enough that this would be prioritized by people who had means to support these things. So that was really, yeah, that was really the feeling. Like you knew something was shifting, but you felt, especially in the culture sector, that maybe you offered something special, a total delusion. And I think it really wasn't until 2014 for me, I think others, especially those who are working at like non-culture adjacent media, definitely felt this earlier. Yeah, I would say that most people in the publishing world had this revelation sometime in the early teens. I think there's a few milestones in this where there's a very clear, large portion of culture that's happening online that's just not represented in legacy media for, for a whole variety of reasons. But something begins to happen around like 2015, 16, as all of like American pop culture is just subsumed into uh, social media, just devours everyone's attention. It becomes incredibly conspicuous. Like it's just your experience of scrolling your newsfeed every day versus linear media is like, there's a tremendous disparity, right? So things start to open up. There's just like a wedge of attention and interest that seems to divorce alt media and the online experience from legacy media and linear publications and so on. But oddly enough, there's like no attempt to like, oh, we are lagging behind. We should try and catch up with this runaway story that we're now late to approach. (laughs) And so what starts to happen is that the way that legacy publications react to it is in this super reactionary way where if you think about it from a purely business perspective, it is actually a threat to their profits that their readership is now moving elsewhere. So of course, uh, on top of all of the questionable political commitments that some of these alt media people have, there's just a you know clear business competition thing where you have to kind of disparage the guy who makes Pepsi versus the guy who makes Coke, even if they're you know selling you the same experience through an article. And I feel like in 2018, there was this moment, it was a 2018 issue of Art Forum that contained Gritty, the sports oh, mascot right, from the Philadelphia, the hockey. Yeah. Yes. Okay. This was for a very brief period. Like I think it was started by the Philly DSA and it was uh, uh, put into a lot of memes that was going to be the mascot or the icon for the left and what have Total you. Total force uh, 
and it was it did not work very well. Um, but people were they were trying to push something, and the art world was really at this point so overdue to respond they couldn't not make some kind of commentary about it. So in 2018, there's an issue of Art Forum that ends up with gritty on the cover. I went back in advance of this podcast episode looking for um, some of your previous writing, and you <laughs> made a list of recommendations that included, I think, of the final ten <laughs> recommendations. The last one was Come Town in 2018. Oh, yeah. <laughs> do, you, do you remember that? I this do. Fucking yeah, I historic. Do. Like the only no one else in the fucking world would recommend like next to you know prestigious highbrow gallery exhibitions at like museums yeah. and what have you. I think it was like, a like oh yeah, there's Volkholz. this shit posting yeah. podcast that'll be. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But at that point, it's kind of like it's kind of too late for the art world. I was, I was hopeful that moment that this was an indication that was at the same time I wrote the book. There was some rhizome projects that were really high quality happening at that time. But um, yeah, the art world just kind of decided that we're going to permanently ignore everything that's happening online and we are just our own kind of sovereign, inward facing, whatever. So a bit disappointed. And then it begins to make sense from that perspective why certain people tend to exit and start their own publications, their own news feeds and uh, content streams. For sure. I mean, and there is, I mean, this term is like an IDW term, but there is definitely like audience capture that's happening or woke capture that's happening in these legacy publications. There's sort of two things that happen around 2014, I want to say. One is legacy media knows the only way it's going to drive new eyeballs is through writers who have strong social media followings. And so you're going to have writers with strong social media followings prioritized over those more nuanced writers, which is going to limit the kinds of takes you're going to get to those that are popular on social media. They and kind of made their own bed, didn't they? They did, Because yeah. picking people who had big social media followings that could push traffic, those people could also just start their own substacks and they could really exit. Like that's true. Journalism writing has like a built-in audience that's much larger than art criticism. So for publications like The Atlantic, The New York Times, Washington Post, like these big these big legacy publications, there's also pretty clear financial incentives for a lot of people to make a leap and actually earn a better living publishing on their own platform that we've seen play out in the past few years. I mean, that's absolutely true. And you see that migration happen around like 2018, 19, definitely during COVID is when you really see that happen. But like Let's also remember that a top publication in 1968 would pay what in today's currency equals around $10 a word for a, a major feature, right? That's a substantial, you write two features a year and you're set. You can have a middle-class life and send your kid to school. In the 1980s, at Condé Nast, Tina Brown famously made the $2 a word, which, which seemed like a lot of money. It would be like equivalent to $6 a word now. And that seemed like, yeah, you could, again, you could write maybe three features a year and you could like have a decent life. On average, The Guardian, for instance, or, you know, most publications, they pay on average around 25 cents a word now, right? That means that you would roughly need to write one 650, 700 word piece every single day of the year to, <laughs> to bring in a salary of like, you know, gross around 50K. Now, 50K is not nothing, but nobody's writing a Guardian article every single day, right? That's just not possible in order to, you know, to research it. It's not sustainable, let alone living in like a major urban center and having a family. It's not an adult job. It can't be taken seriously. It's not a real financial model. So you see this like, you know, this total implosion of the value of like what writers are doing. But I'm getting a little ahead of myself because if we go back to say 2014, we don't yet have the Substack option. Most people aren't really thinking in terms of like the creator economy yet. 
so if I speak specifically about the culture sector, because that's what I know, you have legacy publications that are seeking younger writers with large social media followings because they will know they know it will help their own numbers, it will help their own clicks. But they're very nervous about being associated with anybody who's edgy online. Specifically noting this alliance between, say, the government and corporate culture and social media and anyone who doesn't have the narrative like, wow, social media is a democratizing force. Isn't it great? It's like allowing everybody to have a voice. So you see culture sector media choose people who their edge is in a very particular angle, people who want to like speak truth to power, people who want to protest, you know, and sometimes these are very legitimate things. I mean, like there is a lot of good change that did happen from, you know, some of the woke energy from the teens. It's not like totally terrible, but you see a very particular kind of edgy internet writer that enters these spaces. An audience comes with that, an audience who doesn't want to see incoherence in legacy media, wants to make sure that the language is right, like defund, abolish, and there's not a lot of wiggle room. So by 2016, 17, 18, these legacy media publications are reliant on figures and audience that is, they have a very, actually a very narrow political outlook. They really don't want anything that threatens it. You end up with um, Gritty on the cover of Art Forum in 2018 because he's like this safe meme character that doesn't offend people who are like more woke aligned in 2018. And so I really think they dug their own grave there. They were audience captured. The recent capture of institutional priorities with this disparity ideology, um, they've kind of put the cart in front of the horse because if you're paying people 25 cents a word in legacy media and then also uh, similar rates for adjunct professors and uh, cultural institutions in general, The only people who can afford to do that work are those who have access to intergenerational wealth. It has to be subsidized from somewhere, and we don't have the social democratic basis of society to subsidize people's creative pursuits. So you end up with incredibly wealthy, privileged people who have these very radical politics that are actually impossible to realize within the frameworks of those institutions because they are dependent on billionaire philanthropic donors. So it kind of creates this perfect push and pull contradiction that keeps the thing in motion. And actually, I think I'm paraphrasing from Angela Nagel here, but the liberals have done incredible work to synthesize the most extreme elements of either of their adversaries, both on the left and on the right, that you see the most unprecedented, ruthless austerity that's ever taken place in the history of civilized society. And then you see this incredible woke rhetoric where um, are we really supposed to believe that any of these hedge funds care about settler colonialism? Like, give me a <laughs> fucking break. Right, this is, right, this right, is nonsense. Right. And I mean, also, I, as you mentioned before, with the, um, the kind of rigor around some of these political phrases, I do have to say that defund and abolish are categorically the most unpopular political phrases, period. You just look at voter turnout and polling responses like people don't want that, especially working class people. They want more police because they're at risk in their neighborhoods. These are things that are appealing to people who have come from elite universities who live in, let's be honest, like extremely segregated lives in universities, cultural institutions, in elite fancy neighborhoods. And, you know, their priorities tend to cascade onto everyone else. And because of lack of opportunity and ability to exit, we're kind of stuck having to toe the line on a lot of these rhetorical topics that are largely broadly unpopular. So let's, let's take this question of exit seriously. We've kind of outlined the problems with legacy media, with uh, cultural institutions and like elite structures of, you know, all the problems with editors and curators and what have you. But you make this leap. Now you're out on your own platform. 
it seems like there's a whole different terrain that then takes place in social <laughs> media where if you were trying to do, just entertain the counter narrative, if you were trying to do the rigorous work that you could infrequently, but sometimes publish through linear media, that stuff just absolutely sinks to the bottom of the newsfeed. And so what That's you right. find is that you have to kind of pander to celebrity. You have to attach your essay to a sexy selfie. You have to do <laughs> all types of like kind of clickbait, prank video, silly uh, tricks for titling and grabbing people's attention. And it just feels like the opportunities are increasingly few that you can get quality stuff out there. So I think new models, interdependence, I would say my channel as well. Like we, we make a very rigorous attempt to try and produce quality work, but we are very small channels. That's right. I think we have quality of reach that there's people who are, for example, curators or editors of major magazines that listen very closely to the topics we talk about, but we don't have a wide reach. You know, none of this is like Logan Paul or, or any of these characters, you know, uh, much, much smaller. So I wonder if in your experience the last few years, say like 2018 to now, you've been publishing on your own platform. Are there things that you miss about the legacy media structure that like you're putting together a podcast or a newsletter or something and you're like, you know, I can't publish that in this format. I have to make this kick up in the newsfeed. It's got to perform well. I have to optimize for views and I have to hook people in like the first sentence or they're going to click through to the next thing. I would actually say the opposite is kind of true for new models in terms of feeling limited. Hmm. When publishing with TextSequenced or publishing with Artforum, there was this particular like higher brow audience that I imagined, right? There was a certain level of like scholarship or academic rigor that I felt or, you know, the editors around me also enforced. I think it's good. These magazines had certain reputations. You know, I don't know if that's true necessarily anymore. That was the feeling like circa 2014. With new models, one, I mean, we'd love to scale, but we don't want to scale at the expense of losing a more dedicated, focused audience and ourselves becoming audience captured to somebody who is going to unsubscribe immediately if we're not like publishing something that's like super fun every single minute. I actually found it more liberating because our audience is in a way broader. They're not art specialists. Some are. There's, there's some who are. But we also have technologists. We also have people who do things that are totally unrelated to maybe tech and culture. Maybe they're just like into weird internet stuff and are specialists for in forestry or other kinds of things. And so I felt like it was okay to unpack things in really simple ways. Like I didn't feel like we were being dumb if we asked someone to explain a term or we felt like we were having to create a new canon. We had to create a new glossary, a new vocabulary. And yeah. so I actually felt the past five years have felt very intuitive the way we've built our content. Of course, some things work and some things don't work. And you kind of just say, okay, noted and move on. But I really don't feel like we're trapped by our audience whatsoever. I will say, though, that both Julian and I, we do other work in addition to new models in order to support ourselves. So we've made that choice that we weren't going to put all the weight on the podcast and the channel, that we were going to continue to take commercial jobs and other kinds of things that would subsidize it. We also live in Berlin on an old rental contract, which allows us to like live a really you know pretty simple life. But having a family and these other kinds of aspirations changes that equation. And I don't know if you were to ask me in a year or two if I'd have the same exact answer. But I am curious, Josh, how it's affected you because you do have this more specialized content, which 
I mean, your project would fall apart if you diluted it. It's valuable specifically because you're the one person who's actually going there and doing this research. I like to think of art as the professional field that doesn't have to abide by the disciplines of any other field. I think the art world in general is a really effective petri dish for like de-risking cultural innovation that you have these Mm. spaces where people can meet up and then very interesting, very influential projects spawn uh, later on. I'm thinking of a few artists in particular, and I'm thinking of a few podcasts with reaches that are much, much larger than ours. Um, All of those things have roots in the art world and in these like weird cultural spaces that just couldn't happen anywhere else. If you were purely a journalist, you'd be subject to rigorous fact checking and you wouldn't be able to make data agnostic trend forecasting statements in public. But being attached to an arts institution, you can say, okay, this person has some kind of legitimacy, credible foresight, or, or what have you. So I guess this is, this is kind of the bind is that the strength of the art world in particular is its flexibility, you know, and, and unfortunately, like the force, the push to professionalization drains some of that flexibility, it makes it more brittle in a way. So yeah, I feel like my hope for the channel in particular is that at the end of all of this, DNR can be its own self-standing 501c3 nonprofit arts organization that like publishes people's work, which, you know, we do that, I think, more frequently than most art magazines now, just in a a quantitative sense. Um, And then there's just, as we talked about in the past few minutes on the podcast, there's a severe lack of reporting and uh, quality work dedicated to these subjects, which are, you know, very obviously important. This is probably a year ago now, but this example really stuck with me. I was in, maybe I won't say where I was because then it'll be obvious who the person is. <laughs> a German city, fuck, everyone's going to know who I'm talking about. But there's, a, there's a very influential artist. This is somebody who I looked up to and modeled my career after. This was like, I was so... I don't know, honored to be included in an exhibition with this person. You know, this is one of the people that I, I really looked up to, 10 years older than me, set the narrative, set the aesthetic for a generation, incredibly brilliant artist. And we're having this talk and we're kind of riffing on Patreon and we're riffing on collectors and, and whatever. And I'm like, is this guy, is he making fun of me? Is he like making fun of me as a failed artist because I had to like do crowdfunding or whatever? And then he keeps asking about it. Like he keeps asking and it's all of a sudden it dawns on me that this guy is really interested in crowdfunding. And he says, you guys found a way out. That he feels trapped in the institution at the height of his success. The guy that I tried to model my career after is like, damn, you guys got it figured out. And I'm like, bro, we're on like so precarious. Like you're subject to the whims of the algorithm and like the newsfeed. It's like, this is not a way out. Like we're trying to survive. But to see that from the opposite side, I don't know. It told me, it told me something about the whole project. So yeah, I guess, you know, I have a particular set of interests, but like, there is a different um, end game that I, I think I have in mind. The big, the big arc of this is that in the periods that we're describing, let's say just roughly 2012 to we're now in 2023, like in that 10-year arc, there's a massive decline of the middle class and mid-tier galleries, some of which you used to work at and you, you know this experience very well. Um, and the problem is that there's a whole bunch of talented young people who just literally don't have spaces and resources to show their work. Uh, And so I kind of imagine new models and do not research as being like these makeshift creative incubators for people to learn a set of references, have a built-in audience, refine their work 
in the early era of Facebook, we were kind of posting things to our friends and then you would have a, like a discourse through the comment threads and like exchange messages. And then you, you built towards a consensus idea. And that was a much more vibrant discourse. And I think it was a lot more fulfilling for a lot of people. So I'm hopeful that like, through this process of gathering digital communities and sending out this strong signal, we can rebuild some of those opportunities. And maybe that takes the shape of becoming a nonprofit or something else. I guess the rest is is to be determined. But I guess yeah. maybe let me throw this to you because I'm curious about, I know very well, like New York is an ecosystem of just scrappy project spaces right now. There's basically giant blue chip beyond, you know. Hauser, whatever. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Pace, Hauser and Worth, uh, David Zwerner, Bogosian, these yeah. things. Yeah, absolutely dominated, overwhelming domination in the market. And then there's just this enormous archipelago of scrappy project spaces. Mm-hmm. So I see kids kind of like ping-ponging back and forth, but not really gathering anywhere for too long. Is it a similar situation in Berlin or is it still possible to kind of to go there, be a little bit aimless for a few years, feel things out? And, and find your community, you know, uh, uh, bootstrap. Not with the new were. real estate uh, prices, no. sadly. Um, but I mean, actually, I mean, I want to come back to a couple of things you said there. You said a bunch of interesting things. One question that I'd actually like to ask that maybe can animate this question regarding spaces for younger people to be making art, showing art or whatnot, is what era of media is coming next? And this is a question that my partner, Lil Internet and New Models, we've been thinking about a lot. We know that Web2 media is atrophying. It's increasingly inefficient. And in my mind, it's like an interstate highway that like has like annoying toll booths and like has like really shitty um, travel plazas filled with billboards and the posts are like the billboards. All it does is like send you to different exit ramps to visit the spaces that it advertises. And then some maybe are going to be satisfying community enclaves and others are going to be purely functional and others are going to be terrible or whatever. And so I think our conception of social media is changing. Therefore, I think our conception of some kind of shared media is going to change as well. So just putting that out there as like an animator and a question of like what era of media is coming next. In my mind, it has to do in part with this phenomenon of, if we keep it in an art world context, a lot of these mega galleries now have their own publications where they can pay writers with PhDs working salaries to write good essays about important canonical art figures, right? I don't know what the readership necessarily is for these magazines, but the economic model is in place for some kind of media to be produced. And people who care about, say, Hauser and Worth or Zwerner or whatever, they will at least look at the magazine because they want some association with that world. They want to understand the habitus of this world. If they're one, if they are aspiring collectors, they're absolutely going to study it because they want to get an in so that they can, you know, get the good pieces. If they're a younger artist who's interested in the artist this gallery shows, they too maybe are interested because here is the aggregator of like those references that this gallery thinks is important. You see this also in fashion. You see this with, say, Essence. You see this with High Snobiety. I mean, to be honest, I went down a rabbit hole and there's numerous sites that are built on the Essence model aggregating small labels that probably don't even have retail spaces. They are editorializing collections. I mean, I'm not going to say that the writing is fantastic, but there's at least some inspiration behind it. And they are some kind of common space for different creative sectors, right? So I see that there's this new form of media that's evolving, and I have to do a lot more thinking and research. But I don't 
know if the mid-tier gallery is so necessary anymore. I think that the majority of artists, and, and I'm sure there are people listening who will really disagree with this, and that's fine. I'm curious to hear those opinions also. But in my experience, watching people's careers develop, you have young artists who do stuff at project spaces, and maybe they have one or two really cool shows or do some cool things, and then their path takes them elsewhere. Maybe they end up working in film or they end up in architecture or something, I don't know, else completely, forestry, whatever. Then you have some who skyrocket, like you know your Avery Singers, those who spend very little time in the midsection. They sort of come out of school, do a few shows, and then suddenly they have a big gallery behind them. Those artists that remain in the middle, that middle ground, it's almost more for the gallerists that have the potential to move up to sub blue chip or like, let's say sub blue chip and blue chip are kind of the same. Let's say it's not just the big four, let the big five. Let's say there's like that tier. Then there's a tier that's like just slightly lower that also services like does a pretty good turnaround every single year. I wonder if the mid-tier gallery still serves the same purpose. As a place of de-virtualization, it's important. But as a necessary stepping stone, I wonder if it's not just like a shadow of Gen X or something. I wonder if like those mid-tier, I've heard heard more horror stories about mid-tier galleries, galleries that take work and sell it, but then tell the artist, well, there are all these production costs and also we're waiting to get paid, et cetera. I mean, there's so much angst. That's I know that like, very well. Yes. Right? Yeah. I mean, everybody who's shown at these spaces has a story and I, I kind of understand it. I mean, real estate's really expensive. Going to art fairs is really expensive. That business model for the mid-tier gallery is really hard. But I wonder if it's just not even that necessary. I mean, to answer your question... Berlin does have mid-tier galleries and they do work. And I think the economic structure of Berlin is different. Berlin's kind of like the countryside. I mean, it's not like a big city the way that New York or London is, right? It's it's milder. The whole thing is milder. And I I just, I think there might be other pathways for that midsection, perhaps. I wish sometimes that we had actually crossed paths in the art world in 2012 before you ended up leaving New York. It's it's surprising that that hadn't happened because I did meet, coincidentally, Julian on a trip to Boston uh, forever ago. This was a jogging exhibition in actually literally 2012 at the uh, Mass Art with Brad and the whole jogging crew. This is way back when. Um, But yeah, in that time, you have been just such a tremendously influential literally an influential voice and that I hear you on the podcast, but also (laughs) through your writing and your conceptual framing of all these issues. And I just couldn't be more grateful for your work. So if you listen to this podcast, if you enjoy this content, I strongly encourage you to listen to New Models, subscribe on Patreon, Substack, newmodels.io is literally my homepage. People who watch the stream will notice when I refresh or open a new tab, it opens to newmodels.io, which is how the Drudge Report did it. (laughs) It actually, yeah, it features the piece from uh, from Document Journal Excellent document piece, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And Carly was the editor on uh, Irony Politics and Gen Z, which is going to be pushed out through the Substack. We did this back in 2019 now. Yeah, such such an important piece. Yeah, which made it into a few TED Talks and a few interesting citations. And yeah, it's been a it's been a wild ride. Um, anyway, Carly, thank you so much for joining me today. I am uh, immensely indebted to your content and your uh, influence in it's the past mutual. few years. So <laughs> thank you so much for coming on. Where can people find you aside from the platforms I mentioned? And what stuff should people look out for in the near future? Let's see. I mean, we are working on a talk for a Schumann Bazaar for Art Dubai that is hopefully going to animate what you know the next era of media will be. This is really the, like, I feel like a few years ago, we were thinking about what are these structures that are 
starting to develop outside of ClearNet. Then it was like, okay, let's talk about the progression of media from linear to nonlinear or holographic. And now the question is really, all right, but like, what now is the next era of media? Like, where do we see this going? And um, we will be giving that talk in the first week of March. And I imagine we'll have some stuff coming out after that, that um, maybe gives some clues as to where to look next. Otherwise, newmodels.io and channel.xyz, that's our joint project with Interdependence, Joshua Citarella, New Models. So pleasure being on, Josh. Thank you so much for the time and uh, for the platform. Thanks, Carly. (laughs) More again soon. Hey, everybody. Thanks for listening. This is an independent show. If you like this content, you can help to show your support by subscribing and leaving a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. You can support the show on Patreon, Substack, or channel. Find me on socials at Joshua Citarella on Instagram or Twitter. This is a listener-supported show. I don't do any advertising, so your support is really what keeps this project going. Thanks for listening. See you again soon. Thanks, man.